Psalm 133, these are the words of God. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. This morning I'm going to talk about this relatively large concept uh, known as unity. Um, In the time that we have today, I want to define what unity truly is. We're going to kind of look at the definition of unity, or we're going to look at a definition of unity. We're going to look at uh, what unity looks like, and what I mean by that is some practical outplay of unity, how it should affect our lives. And we're also going to look at um, how good unity is to God, because that's the declaration. Behold, how good and how pleasing it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, uh, I'm just going to kind of get comfortable here because a lot of what I say is um, it's just stuff that I've learned, stuff that I think we've learned as a church over the past 10 years. The first thing is this, that unity is not to be confused with uniformity. Unity is not to be confused with uniformity. Uh, Uniformity masquerades a lot as unity, but it is not the same thing. I've said this for years now, um, more than 10 years as a matter of fact, but I've said it for years now that unity is not people coming into agreement with each other concerning God. That is not unity. Coming into agreement with each other concerning God is not unity. Instead, unity is uh, what results when the people of God come into agreement with God together. Okay? We agree with God and we just happen to be together. In that sense, unity is simply a byproduct. Unity is simply a byproduct. And that byproduct is uh, the direct result of submission to King Jesus. That's what we're called to do. We're called to submit, and God brings us together. The former, this idea of agreeing with one another about God, leads to denominationalism. It leads to other forms of uniformity. Uh, Meanwhile, the latter, which is to agree with God together, uh, as I'll show, leads to life. It leads to peace. It leads to true togetherness for all the people of God. The first, again, uniformity, is simply, um, is, is simply faux unity, right? It weeds through the applicants to find people who already agree with its particular system. That's what uniformity does. That's what denominationalism does. But the second, true unity, takes work, it requires patience, it employs grace, and ultimately, if it's done the way God uh, establishes it, it will result in maturity. This is where iron, sharpening iron, plays out uh, in the Christian life. Uh, This is just a bit of a warning or a disclaimer, uh, but, and this is really important, unity takes work. Unity is hard work. Can I get an amen (laughs) from like three of you? Okay, Uh, unity is hard work. Just like loving people, just like forgiving people, just like being patient with others is hard work. Now, I don't think I need to explain the, uh, or convince 
all of you of the complexity of loving, of patience, of those things. I think we all have lived that. But I want to show you that unity is exactly the same in the level of its work. As a matter of fact, unity might be even harder because to achieve unity, you have to have put in the work of love and patience and grace towards one another. Amen? So we need all of those things in order to get to unity. Now, this is a thought. I give you a disclaimer. I give you a word. And then the way my mind rolls and thinks about all kinds of things, I always want to to clarify. I always want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. The term hard work uh, can be terribly misunderstood. Uh, It might even be a wrong... uh, way to phrase unity, that it is hard work. Uh, the, the work that's involved in true unity is a work of surrender, not a work of, of, um, of fighting or, or anything like that. It's actually a work of coming under one another. You see, when you love somebody, when you care for somebody, you're there to support them. You're there to serve them. You're there to help them. Love, in most cases, guys, is a race to the back of the line right? So so when I talk about the hard work of unity, I'm talking about a hard work that says, I got to actually stop striving for my own agenda, my own ideas, my own points, the things that I want. I actually have to stop. I have to submit. I have to listen. And I have to say, okay, how can I help you? How can I help grow you? How can we move forward together? So, so hard work may not be the right way to put it, but you kind of get what I'm, what I'm saying here. Part, uh, apart from the hard work or whatever that might be, uh, the beauty of unity is that if we are a submitted church, if we are agreeing with God together, then we are genuinely unified with followers all over the world. Doesn't matter what church they belong to. Doesn't matter if you've ever met them. You are unified with believers on the other side of the globe. When we agree with God together, we're placed within the context of the greater kingdom of God. We're actually adopted into the family of God. Uniformity and denominationalism, they can't provide this. These are man-made systems, and all they do uh, is is pretend unity for those who drink their brand of Kool-Aid or for those who buy into their branding or their labels. And this is one of the great tragedies in the American church right now. The great tragedy in the, one of the great tragedies in the American church is that it's all about our particular brand of Jesus. So, there can be churches galore in an area. There can be churches that are, uh, uh, that are absolutely changing their city and their world, but it doesn't matter because the second the new church wants to come in, they want to come in and bring, bring their brand of Jesus to that particular area. You see, what the problem is, is that it communicates to the world, we're not unified, We're not even close to unified. What we are is people trying to fight or gain market share in a spiritual uh, economy. This is nonsense, church, and it's a problem. So denominationalism, uniformity, all it is is if you'll drink our Kool-Aid, you can be a part of our club. If you'll wear our label, you can be a part of our club. Uh, Even then, if you've been around for any length of time, you know that that's a fake unity. Even inside of denominations, they're sitting there arguing about everything. (laughs) You know this. 
This is so sad. This is what happens. So uh, we can distinguish unity from uniformity, and we should do that, okay? But I want to take it a step further. Let me ask you a question, because this is often a, uh, a hindrance to arriving at unity. Does genuine unity mean that we won't have disagreements? No, no. How many of you are married in this room? I don't even need to say anymore, right? So the idea is, the idea is, sure, we have disagreements. What does that have to do with unity? What does that have to do with anything? As long as we're moving together, as long as we're, we're, we're trying to gain ground for what is right, then we're good. Unity means that we actually work through our differences for the sake of what? Peace and the glory of God. The church needs to be moving forward for the sake of peace and for the glory of God. We're not. We're defaming him constantly because all we do is bicker and fight with each other. And the world goes, I don't want to be a part of that. Why would I want to step foot in those doors? That doesn't make any sense. We have to employ the humility that we learned last week uh, in Romans 14 from the Apostle Paul. And if you haven't listen to that message or you aren't here, you really need to go back and listen to that on the podcast. It will change the way you think. But when we do employ a Romans 14 approach, what we seek, unity, what we seek, peace, we will find. And we'll find it in abundance. And we'll find it in every circumstance. We'll find it with our personal relationships. We'll find it with a corporate relationship. We'll find it in our workplace. We'll find it everywhere if we'll actually employ what Paul tells us in Romans 14. We'll give one another the benefit of the doubt. How many of you want people to do that for you? How many of you don't like doing that for others? (laughs) Okay, so yes. But we'll give each other the benefit of the doubt. What is this? 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all things. It's giving each other the benefit of the doubt. We'll recognize that God is the master of all and that we're not. You know what that means? That means we're not walking around condemning everybody every day. But, listen to me, please listen to me, that leaves the door wide open for correction, but correction and condemnation are vastly different. And we live in a hypersensitive culture where correction is viewed as condemnation. Well, tough, (laughs) right? But condemnation is not our our game. Condemnation is not even something, I know this this is kind of crazy to hear because many wrestle with this and they feel this all the time. But if you are in Christ Jesus, this is a true statement. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. Which means this, if you believe in Jesus, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, and you feel condemnation, it's not from God. It's not from God. What will God say to you? God might say to you, what are you doing? God might say, come and walk with me a little deeper, but he's not going to say, go to hell. Okay? Condemnation is not the MO of God. And we who are in Christ Jesus don't have to worry about that. So we give one another the benefit of the doubt. We recognize that God is the master of all and that we're not. We learned that from Romans 14. We'll recognize that when it comes to even doctrinal truths, we are all growing in maturity at different levels. We got to understand this, church. You know that I will talk to my daughter, Sam, 
eight years old, I will talk to my daughter Sam vastly different than I will talk to Jacob Dolezal. Sometimes. <laughs> I love you. So here's why. Here's why. Because Jacob is more mature. I can look at Jacob and say, what are you thinking? And know that he already knows what he's supposed to be doing or what, whatever, right? I know that. But with Sam, I have to work her through that. I have to train her. Now, here's a really important thing. Is age a direct connection to maturity? No. You should look at the person next to you and say no, right? Because it's just absolutely true. Just because you're old, just because you're older, doesn't mean you know anything, okay? This is really important, Jacob. Anyway, so just because you're older. But the church is filled with a mixed bag. The church is filled with older saints that have been walking with the Lord all their life. Guess what? There's wisdom and beauty in that. There are, there are older saints that have been walking with the Lord for a few years, which means in some sense, as a, as a spiritual person, they're a child. And so you have to work with them. Uh, you have to do this across the board in every different place, in every different way, and understand we can have grace with each other, and especially concerning doctrinal issues. Why? Because my daughter, Sam, does not understand the complexity of the Trinity, Neither do I, for that matter. But she doesn't understand the complexity of the Trinity in its fullness. Do I sit there and go, oh my goodness, panic, she's a heretic, cast her out? No, and yet we do this with each other all day long. We go, oh, so you don't understand it my way, sorry. There's another church for you down the street. What? What are we doing, right? Imagine you were a teacher, or imagine you were a student in a class of a teacher, and that, that teacher or you, let's just go with you being the teacher, okay? So you're a teacher, and you teach an entire batch of kids uh, algebra, okay? You teach them algebra, and you get them ready, and you graduate them on to the next grade, okay? You're proud of yourself. You've done well. Let's just say everybody passed. Hallelujah, right? Okay, next batch of kids comes in. How do you treat them? Well, you should know this already. Not a chance. You look at them as though they're starting completely over, because they are, right? And you have mercy with them. And you go, okay, yes, I reached fulfillment in the other, in the other class. I graduated them on, but I have to start over again. You see, the church has no patience in this realm. Because what the church does is, we've all been walking with the Lord for a long period of time. Where have you been? Where do you think they've been? They've probably been under a church that is impatient as you are, not teaching them what they need to know. That's just, it's just sad. You would never as a teacher expect the new class coming in to just get it. You would be patient and you would teach them. The same thing has to be with regard to one another. We have to start being patient with one another. Understanding again, we're all at different levels. Jesus taught that Christians would be known by their love for one another, John 13, 35. Known by their love for one another. Paul taught us that as far as it depends on us, we're supposed to live at peace with all people. You know who's included in all people? Christians, <laughs> right? We're, we're like vicious to our own. My dad's always said this when I was a kid. He said, the Christian army is the only one that shoots its own wounded. We're like, sorry, you're wounded. You're not helped us. Boom, right? What are you doing? 
right? But this is what happens. So we're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be patient. We're supposed to be loving to all people. Then Galatians tells us, Paul went on and said, I want you to do good to people. So it goes more from a disposition now to action. Do good to all people and especially the household of faith. We're supposed to do good to each other. So how in the world can we claim any of this to be true? How can we claim that we're marked by love? How can we claim that we're living at peace with all people? How can we claim that we do good to all people and especially the household of faith when if somebody disagrees with us, we give them the left foot of fellowship? We kick them straight out. How is it that we're claiming any of these? Here's the answer. You can't claim them. You're faking. (laughs) You're wrong or we're wrong as a church and this is really tragic. Yet, if we come into agreement with God together, we will experience what God calls good. We will experience unity. We'll experience it with grace, with mercy, with love. We will correct each other with gentleness. We'll do all the things that we've been taught to do. Doesn't that sound like a better vision for the church than kind of the way it's been? This is a much better way to do church. And guess what? It's just the Bible. Right? We just look at what it says and we understand it. So this is where we jump into the psalm, right? The opening of Psalm 133 forms a basis uh, for the other comparisons that happen in the psalm. So the psalmist comments on the blessing of unity and how good it is. In doing this, he compares to two really important things. Number one, he compares brothers dwelling together in unity or the blessing of true unity to the anointing oil used for Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest for God's people. So he compares dwelling together in unity with the anointing oil used for Aaron, and make sure you understand it, he compared it to the oil itself. Not to to Aaron, not to Aaron's beard, not to Aaron's clothes. We're going to see that, but it's about the oil, okay? And number two, he compares this unity to the dew that collects on the mountains of Zion. Um, This is the place where the blessing of eternal life or life forever was declared by God, mind you. So God comes and God speaks to his people and he declares the blessing. The NASB renders the first line of this psalm as an exclamation. Behold, David says, behold. Uh, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now when I hear that, I have to turn it into a question and say, so how good is it, right? That's, that's great what you've said. It's great the declaration, but I need to understand how good is this. And so this is the question we're going to keep in the back of our mind the entire time as we walk through this. And we're going to ask it several times. So how good is it? church so how good is it church and we're looking for a better answer than that kind of pat answer of well it's really good Nathan right that's not what I'm looking for I'm looking for what is the substance of how good it is what does the Bible actually say so through David's pen we see God's inspired declaration that unity is in fact good just as God declared the heavens and the earth to be good when he created them He declares unity among brothers to be the same thing. So I suppose there's one answer to our question. So how good is it? It's as good as creation. Really? That's pretty big. Us dwelling together in unity is seen by God on the same level as Him creating the cosmos. 
This is not something to take lightly, right? So, so this is a huge, huge deal. Uh, when we appreciate that comparison, I think fully that unity is uh, equal to creation, um, as good as creation, my view is that we will then desire to be good stewards of unity as we are commanded to be good stewards of what God created. How many of you know that you were commissioned to rule and reign over God's created planet? You were made to subdue it, to be fruitful, to multiply. That was your job, and guess what? It still is your job. This is what we're supposed to do. So that is, that's a, a majestic reality, and we're supposed to be stewards of that. And God says, on par with that is unifying with brothers and sisters. And so you should be as much of a steward of that as you are of subduing the earth. This is a big deal, guys. So next, we have David's use of uh, familial language, right? Which is no accident, by the way. Uh, throughout the scriptures, God's people are likened to a family repeatedly. Uh, the term brother here is also used to describe fellow countrymen, depending on the, uh, depending on the verse or the context. Uh, meaning that Israel saw themselves as brothers and sisters. It wasn't just this tribe and that tribe and that tribe and that tribe. There was a family that was going on. They were God's chosen family. Now, several tragic instances of division show uh, a lack of unity and its effects in the corporate family. And I need you to listen to these, right? Some of the tragic uh, divisions that occurred would be something like Cain and Abel. What was the effect of the division between Cain and Abel? Murder. Murder. This is not good. <laughs> okay? So, so they're actually, you've got a brother killing a brother instead of loving a brother. How about Jacob and Esau? It's tragic. What is the, uh, what is the effect of this kind of division? Uh, manipulation, lying, stealing, covetousness, all of it is there, right? Uh, Joseph and his brothers, Genesis, right? Joseph and his brothers. What are the effects of the disunity of Joseph and his brothers? Number one, they sold their brother into slavery. That's not fun. Number two, Jacob, or Joseph was robbed and Jacob was robbed of years of life together. A father and a son robbed of life. Why? Because we can't get unified. We can't stick together. David and Absalom is the last one that I would throw out there. What are the effects of the division between David and Absalom? Absalom tries to and succeeds at stealing the hearts of the people away from the king. Not only that, the relationship is never reconciled. Guys, if we, if we refuse to fight hard for unity, there are relationships in our lives, church-Christian relationships, that we will never see reconciled because we're too stubborn and we're too proud. And listen, I've preached in a mirror all week to myself. This is hard, but this is what we're called to. If I'd known this stuff 10 years ago, I think it would have been a different church from then on. But guess what? I'm an idiot, and God's gracious, so life is really good in that. 
There's always a but though, right? There's always a but. There are instances of great unity among God's people with their effects. And those effects provide us with practical applications or steps moving forward. One particular story that comes to mind is the story of Abram, who you all know transfers into Abraham. Um, Abraham and Lot in Genesis chapter 13. So if you have Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 13, verse 8. Here's what we read. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me. nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are, say it with me, church, brothers. For we are brothers. For we are countrymen. We are together in this. The aim here is clearly the absence of strife. It's said expressly in the verse. And the reason is because brothers shouldn't live this way. Brothers and sisters shouldn't live this way. The length to which we're to go to achieve this kind of unity is actually where we find our challenges. If you've been trained to seek uniformity, you're not even going to look for this. What you're going to do is you're going to gripe and you're going to complain about equality or the lack of equality. This is not a biblical principle here, okay? Let me, let me show you something. Uh, share this again. I've, I've done this many times too. Um, We have an obsession with equality in our world, and it's a wrong obsession. We think that that's actually love when it's not. So let's talk about equality for a second and say I have four daughters. This is really a far stretch for you, isn't it, right? So I have four daughters, and I have eight Skittles. How many of you like Skittles? Okay, good. Just making sure somebody's on board with me. Okay, I got four daughters and I have eight Skittles. And let's just say the youngest is, I'm not going to go with their actual ages. Let's just say the youngest is newborn. Should I be equal and give two Skittles to each child? No, because baby's going to choke, right? Yeah, because equal is stupid in that way. Equal doesn't take into account wisdom. Equal doesn't care for what a, a child's maturity level is or what they can handle. You see, equality, equality per God's definition, it, or, or per the scriptures, is defined by God. God gives as he chooses, and it's good. But he doesn't ever distribute it just to say, here's two for Jeff, here's two for Sarah, here's two for Roger, here's two for Jonathan. It doesn't work that way. He looks at you. He knows you. So we need to actually know people. We don't. And all we want, though, is equality. All we ever want is equality or uniformity. We want everything to be equal. This is not good. So that's what we're seeking, but that's not what we're going to find. Three verses prior to verse 8, this is what Genesis 13, 5 through 7 says. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen and Abraham's flock, or Abram's livestock, and the herdmen's livestock. The first thing to note here is that unity and peace among brothers is the governing ethic. We should always live at peace. What did Paul say? 
insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. The second thing is that this may require going separate ways in some instances. That means not having equality all the time. You don't get the same patch of land as somebody else. Why is this important for Abram and Lot? Well, they had livestock. That was their, that was their blessings. This was their prosperity. And guess what happens when you have too many cows and sheep on a small piece of ground? You kill the ground real quick. And then nobody's eating anything, okay? And so then you have herdsmen, you have these people that are, that are fighting with each other because why? They want to support their, their ground. They want to do this. So there is a point in which true unity cares so much for the other, it says we need to find something that works for all of us and not just be selfish, okay? So they, they send them out and they, and they put them in different places. This is kind of the point. Now this is not to be confused with agreeing to disagree or hating each other just because you want to, okay? This is not agreeing to disagree. How many of you know that that's a fact of life, that you just agree to disagree with some people, okay? It's just as stupid to say that it is as it is to put a coexist bumper sticker on your car. How many of you know we live in America? How many of you know we already coexist? You seen any Christians get murdered lately? You seen any Muslims hanged? No, you haven't, right? Because we already know how to coexist. This is absurd. The same thing. Well, you make sure you agree to disagree. You already do agree to disagree. I agree to disagree with that statement. So there you go, right? But the point is, these are, these are weird things. That's not unity. That's sweeping stuff under the rug. What did I ask you to do last week? Don't sweep things under the rug, right? Let's talk things out. Let's care for each other enough to say, hey, I disagree with you. Hey, I need help understanding this. Hey, we need to get somewhere. So it's not about agreeing to disagree. Lot and Abram didn't agree to disagree. They actually cared for each other in what was going on. This instead has to do with grace for one another. Abram and Lot wanted the best for the other. So they were willing to do whatever to maintain unity. We don't do that in the church. We just kind of pick it up and go somewhere else. Think about what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Philippi. Uh, Jacob referenced this this morning, and it's such a powerful verse. So here's what uh, Philippians chapter 2 starting at verse 1 and going through 8, says, verse 1, Therefore, uh, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. But let's think about verse 1. Is, is there any of that? Is there any encouragement in Christ, church? You guys don't believe this. It's just absolutely true. Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes, there is. Is there consolation of love? Yes, there is. Is there fellowship of the Spirit? If you call yourself a Christian, Romans says that you are given the spirit of adoption, you are born again, filled with the Spirit, you win. Okay? Beautiful stuff, right? Is there affection and compassion in Christ? Yes, there's plenty of it. Okay, so keep that in your mind. The answer to all that is yes. So Paul says, if there's any of that, and the answer is yes, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind. This is verse 2. The same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What does that sound like? Sounds like unity, doesn't it, church? So we're supposed to be together, and why would we be together? What motivates us? If there's any of this that's true in Christ, you should want to do it. 
It's all there, so we should want to do it. So then the practical stuff starts, and it starts to really hurt, right? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Husbands. (laughs) Jerry, buying your uh, pocket knives. I'm teasing you. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit? You mean I can't think of myself at all in any circumstance? That's actually not what the Bible says. But if you stop too soon, you're going to come up with a cockamamie idea like that, right? So listen to what he says. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important. Like equally important, maybe slightly less. I don't know, Lord. Okay, more important than yourself. And this is where the line really hits us. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Are you supposed to look out for your own personal interests? Yes, just don't do that only. Don't merely look out for your own interests. Paul didn't say don't look out for your own interests. It says, don't merely look out for your own interests, personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the attitude that Christ Jesus had in himself? That he considered us more important than himself. Okay, so guess what? If, if, there is consolation of love, if there's encouragement in Christ, if there's fellowship of the Spirit, if there's affection and compassion in Christ Jesus, and there is, then we're called to follow his lead. And his lead was to put us before himself. And here's the degree to which he did it. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, just said, I ain't budging, I'm God. He didn't do it. In the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Guys, we won't even consider ourselves less than Americans with full array of rights to serve somebody else. God puts down God card and serves us. Are you serious? Wow. He puts down God card and we're like, no, you mess with my freedom of speech. That's it. You're done. Are you serious? Are you serious? You're nothing like your Christ at this point. What a unifying message. Don't worry. I'll get there. But we need to learn it because I'm not condemning you. I'm simply telling you we've got a problem. We're not looking anything like him, and it's tragic, church. So, verse 8 goes on. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says, I become all things to all people so that I might win some to Christ. Jesus says, I died for all people so that I might win you. And we go, sorry, you irritate me because you're a Democrat. I don't even know what to say to this kind of stuff. So how good is it for brothers to dwell together in unity? It's good enough that Christ went to the cross for it. It's good enough that he was willing to lay down his God card so that we might be made whole. It was good enough 
that Abram and Lot looked out for the interests of the others. It's good enough that Paul instructs us to consider our neighbor as more important than ourselves. Guys, it's very good to dwell together in unity. The next thing to look at is David's comparison to the anointing oil used to consecrate Aaron as the first high priest. David said this, It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, uh, as if it was somebody else's, coming down upon the edges of his robes. So did you notice that it says precious oil there? It doesn't just say, hey, here's some oil. Get some olive oil. <laughs> now, the precious oil. Exodus chapter 30, verse 25. You shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. This oil was extremely costly, and it is set apart for one purpose and one purpose only in the Bible. One purpose, to anoint the priesthood. What a powerful thing. This plays into how uh, good unity is in that David was comparing it to something that was set apart, fully set apart. Nobody else gets to do this. Nothing else is like unity, according to what David is saying. Add to that the fact that the oil uh, was costly. You realize that that's the cost of true unity for us too. It's costly. It's going to take work. It's going to be that. Uh, the next thing that we see is that unity marks our position before God, right? Again, John 13, 35, being known by our love for one another. This sacred anointing oil was poured out on Aaron, and the people knew that he had been consecrated for the priesthood. You can read this in Exodus 29, Exodus 30, and Leviticus 8. As Christians, this is where it gets fun. As Christians, we are anointed with the spirit of adoption. There is an oil that is better than all. It is a unique oil that no one can even duplicate. It's the Spirit of God. And He has been poured out on each and every one of us, Romans 8.15, consecrating us for a royal priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which then produces, I said it was a byproduct, which then produces unity as a sign to the world. Doesn't mean we're without effort, but it produces unity to us as a sign for the world. So how good is it for brothers to dwell together in unity? God just compared it with himself, with the Spirit of God. This is a high level of honor. This is a, this is a high level of what we're, or something we're supposed to be aiming for. We should care deeply for it. Last thing in this section is the fact that the oil doesn't just pour over Aaron's beard, uh, over Aaron's head. It goes down onto his beard and extends to his garments. Uh, now, there's a lot that I could say about this. Some of it's conjecture, but uh, a lot of it is absolutely clear. One of the clear things is this, that uh, the perfume was costly, it was poured out, and it's poured out in abundance. God is not stingy when it comes to his spirit when it comes to his blessing in this way. One of the gospels says, you, you ask for this and for that, how much more will your heavenly father give to you the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? How much more will he pour out his spirit on you? Because he knows it's enough for you. He's gonna pour it out as costly as it is, as priceless as it is. He's gonna pour it out on our heads. It's gonna overflow on our beards, although not for you ladies, but it is gonna flow to our garments. And the point is that God's provision is abundant. I don't know. 
Somebody just looked at me as though maybe they, they're offended that they have a beard as a lady. But anyway, I will, I'll leave that one alone. No, no comment there. Okay. This, uh, this may be conjecture, though, this next piece. Um, I believe that the story who pours the woman, uh, the woman who pours the perfume out on Jesus' feet is also showing us a sign that in light of the blessing that she had received, she was willing to go abundantly and excessively for herself, right? I think that that's what that story also communicates. And that is true of us. We, are, we have been dealt with so graciously, our call is to uh, give the only debt we have, which is the debt of love to one another. Amen? So we're supposed to pour this out. The last and final comparison is the dew that rests on the mountains of Zion. The dew of Hermon symbolizes Yahweh's provision for the land of Israel, and dew was often a crucial source of water. So just kind of think of that based on the area, the geography of the area. Uh, In this verse, David connects God's presence with the blessing of his provision. Psalm 133.3, It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord, the Lord himself, right, commanded the blessing life forever. So how or why is unity like dew? (laughs) Uh, Well, let's look at some other verses. It'll help us get a better picture. Proverbs 19, 12. It's on the screen. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion. Yeah, makes sense. But his favor is like dew on the grass. Okay, I've I've got a broader picture of dew. I've got a broader picture of a symbolism for this dew on the grass. It's actually the favor of the king. Hosea 14, 5. I will be like... Uh, I will be like the dew to Israel. He, Israel, will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. It's one of those rare occurrences in the Bible where Israel is referred to as a he even after the person Israel, right? And so it will be like the dew of Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. So in this sense, dew has to do with blossoming. It has to do with taking root. The next one, Micah chapter 5, verse 7. It's on the screen. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord. So hold on a second. It's the remnant of Jacob that's actually interspersed in the world, and they are like the dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. So in these three verses, dew is all of these. Favor of God, the source of life, the strength of life, and a permeating force, the Micah passage, a permeating force that affects the world around it. We're like the dew to the world that God pours out. This really is what unity among brothers starts to look like. In a world where people can't seem to live at peace, uh, we They refuse to try, quite honestly. But in a world that can't live at peace, God's people are intended to model unity for everyone. Right? Strength. We're supposed to be something, but we're not being that. Which, again, is the favor of the king. It's the dew on the grass. It's life-giving. Everybody knows how much happier, uh, everybody here especially would know, how much happier a relationship is when there's unity. Amen? You know what it's like. Well, guess what? When the church is seeking unity, the church is happier. When the church is happier, there's hope. And when there's hope, people are taking note. You know that, right? When the church is filled with joy, uh, people take note. So unity among brothers is a source of life and it's a source of strength for the world to see. 
It's one thing to be physically together. It's an altogether different thing for us to be of the same mind, the same heart, the same spirit of one purpose. When this happens, again, the passage from 1 Peter will take place. People will start to ask us for the hope that we have. So, Great message, Nathan. Great. You talked about unity. You explained a couple of things there. What does this have to do with 10 years of a life of a church? What does this have to do with moving forward? It has to do with moving forward because this has to be part of our vision as our church. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more when we have lunch together after this. Uh, And I encourage each and every one of you to stay and enjoy the time. I've got some pictures I want to show you. A little bit of a life of the church. Uh, You can see how extremely sad Barney was 10 years ago. Anyway, so no, it was, it, it was amazing. He's actually not changed at all. More gray hair, and that's because of me. So anyway, but, uh, but it, some amazing pictures, and I'll talk about this, but I want to talk to you guys about the vision of a church, and I'll say this again here in a little bit, but, but please hear me. Churches have no, churches, um, let me start here. Who is the one who created the church? audience participation. Who created the church? God. God created the church. Do you think that God should then be able to define what he creates? Awesome. So God created the church. God defines what he creates. Should we be the ones casting the vision for the church? No. It doesn't make a lick of sense. We're like, God, here's your institution. We know you created it for a purpose. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to change the purpose. We're going to be a church for people who don't like church. Well, you're not a church right? You're just a grump factory. I don't know what you are, right? So, but this is what we do. We reestablish our vision. We just set it ourselves. We did this 10 years ago, church. We're like, you know, we got some great ideas. Jesus needs our help, right? This is what happens. He wrote us a Bible. He wrote us a Bible. It just was insufficient, right? He should have talked to Nathan and Barney first. It was we, we had some better ideas, right? So what we did was we bought into all the nonsense of the world and we decided we would set our own vision. And over time, God has beat us and shaped us and molded us into a truth that says, no, I created the church. It's for my purpose. I'll set the vision. Amen? And so one of the pieces of that vision is this, that we start living together in unity. That means that we come together and we say, you know what? We're all at different levels. It's okay. We're at different levels. Here's what I'm going to do because you're at a different level. Whether you're higher or lower, doesn't matter. I'm going to have grace. It doesn't matter who has the greater faith or who has the weaker faith. That's the irrelevant point, actually, of Romans 14. The relevant point of Romans 14 is that we are living in grace with each other, living in fellowship, living in unity, living in peace. The mission of the church, the vision of the church is set by God. So he says, you guys need to come together and you need to love each other. You need to care for each other. You need to help each other along the way. When somebody is wrong, you need to correct. But when you do correct, you should do so with gentleness. I've learned the hard way. Dropping the hammer doesn't win you friends and influence people. And I'm not saying this to get a laugh. I'm telling you that I have learned the hard way. My personality has shifted and changed drastically over 10 years, right? I was just a jerk before. Everybody who's watching online that is watching our 10-year anniversary, and I was a jerk to you, I'm sorry. 
right? I was just a jerk. I know that now. I think Sarah tried to tell me. I don't know that I was listening. <laughs> she didn't. She didn't. That was a joke. But the reality is that we're taught, we're reared in a system that simply says uniformity. You set the bar. You set the agenda. You set everything. And if somebody deviates to the right or the left, send them packing. The Bible says God sets the vision. God sets what's supposed to be. And his primary ethic is peace and unity among his people. Love for one another. And in doing that, we have to have mercy. We have to have grace. We have to actually like each other. Did you hear that? You actually have to like Sean over there. I'm just saying, right? We have to like each other. We have to love each other. We need to understand unity better. Because if that's the vision God has set, and it is, we need to start walking in it. 